This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. Our gracious God, we ask that in these next minutes you would help us to see wonderful things in your word. And we ask that you would help us to grasp them and to live in the light and the joy of them. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good friends, on these Sunday mornings, we're travelling through the letter in the New Testament called Hebrews. And uh, in case you think that when we get to the sermon that we actually say goodbye to the real world and we move into a kind of a fantasy land called Christianity, I want to show you that this chapter is a key to moving out of fantasy land and into the real world. In other words, this is a piece of genius, this chapter, because it opens a door whereby you can leave things that will let you down and move into things that will sustain and secure you. Now, we know that um, discovering what is real and what is unreal can be quite a tricky business, and one of the areas where we face unreality most often is the local television Uh, I don't tend to watch sitcom television, but Richard Glover, who is a radio presenter and a journalist, wrote some time ago a very clever article pointing out how unreal television is to normal life. And in the article, he points out, for example, you may have noticed this if you've ever watched sitcoms on television, when, when TV sitcom characters enter a cafe or a pub and everybody is speaking very loudly across the pub or the cafe, the people will very kindly all lower their voices so you can hear exactly what the sitcom characters are about to say. If anybody is on the run from the police and they enter into a cafe, the television in the corner, amazingly, is broadcasting updates on the very case of that particular criminal on the run. Any table, any set of bar stools wanted by television stars becomes immediately available as they enter the building. No police officer can meet an important witness except in a club with a slightly out-of-focus pole dancer in the background. (laughs) In any human interaction, the most important thing is always said with crystal clarity as the person is leaving the room. Something concentrates the mind as a person is leaving the room to say exactly what needs to be said. Although accountants and psychologists are usually male and balding, by putting forensic in the equation, they immediately become female, very pretty, and 20 years younger. (laughs) And nobody in Sydney has a house or a unit without a view of the bridge and the opera house. Now, you need someone to point that out every now and again, don't you, to realise that you're being sucked in by a television presentation that is far, far removed from reality. What Hebrews chapter 8 does is it puts its finger on unreality in the eternal issues which millions of people fall for, sadly, and it puts its finger on reality which millions of people need to get badly. And so if um, reality means anything to you, and it certainly ought to, and if you're concerned that your children and your loved ones have some grip on reality, 
what we read here in Hebrews chapter 8 will help enormously. So you'll find the chapter on page 1188 if you'd like to follow. We get our messages in this church from the Bible. We don't make stuff up and tell you what we think. I certainly don't open my tiny little brain to tell you how the world works. We go back to the Word of God, and that's what we're doing this morning. Now, basically, this chapter is asking a number of questions. Who can you trust, especially with your soul? Where will you find this person? And what can they do for you if you do trust them? That's what chapter 8 is looking at. And if you want to know a little bit of background to Hebrews, the Hebrews were Christians with a Jewish background. And this letter is a little bit of an alarm bell that is ringing because these Christians with a Jewish background were in danger of giving up on the Christian life, which was getting difficult, and going back to Judaism. Why is it so bad to go back to Judaism? Well, because Judaism was pointing to Christ. And so if you leave the destination and go back to the signpost, you've made a huge mistake. But if you follow the signpost to Christ and you put your trust in Christ, then you belong to the one who is the Son of God and the Saviour of the world and has the great answers of life. If you abandon Christ and you um, say goodbye to all of that and go back to Judaism, you go back to the shadow. You go back to the signpost and you lose the person that the signpost was pointing to. And that's why the writer is writing this letter. He's very concerned that people don't give up on Christ. In my pastoral ministry, I keep meeting people who tell me that they were once a believer and they're now no longer a believer. I meet people who've been through schools or Sunday schools or even family upbringings as believers, but have basically given up. And they look on it as if they've made a piece of progress, as though they've got out of some little box or prison. What they've actually done is they've left behind the one who is the Son of God, the Saviour, and has all the answers. It's a tragedy. They have not gone forwards at all. They've gone backwards or sideways in a very dangerous way. So I want to look with you at this chapter under three brief headings, and you won't forget the three points. They all begin with P, as all preachers have three points beginning with P. And they are the best person, verses 1 and 2, the best place, verses 3 to 6, and the best plan, 7 to 13. And some of this, I assure you, is quite mind-boggling. First of all, the best person, verses 1 and 2. You see what he says in chapter 8? The point of what we are saying, verse 1, is we have a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He's talking about Jesus. He says to these Hebrews, you may be tempted to drift off and go back to the temple, the Jewish temple, and get fixated with the priests because you can see them and you can hear them and you can touch them. But if you do that, you're leaving behind the real priest and you're going back to people who are not priests anymore. So um, he says, I want you to understand this is the main point, this is the headline, that we have a high priest called Jesus, and let me tell you about him, says the writer, he sits on the throne. Because he sits on the throne, he's the only great priest. You don't need anyone else but Jesus, you won't find anyone else but Jesus can really help you. 
And there are three quick things to mention, as I say. One is that he's on the throne of heaven, and he's on the throne because he's the king. Somehow Jesus combines power and sympathy. You don't often get the two together. You'll often get power without sympathy or sympathy without power. I would, uh, I'm able to help you. I don't want to help you. I'd like to help you. I can't help you. Jesus brings together power and sympathy. He is the high priest on the throne of heaven. And the second thing we're told is that he's seated. This is a very significant detail. Why is he seated? Because his work is finished. Other high priests would stand in the temple and people would bring in their animals for sacrifice and they would offer the animal on the altar. But Jesus Christ has finished his offering of himself. The job is done, the work is finished, and he now sits. But he also, we're told, thirdly, intercedes. We're told this back in chapter 7. We're told this in chapter 4. He prays for his people and he listens to the prayers of his people. So three remarkable things about this person called Jesus Christ. One, he's the king and the high priest. Second, he sits on the throne because he has finished his great work of salvation. And thirdly, he continues to take an active and moment-by-moment interest in his people, praying for them and listening to their prayers that are prayed to him. So you could sort of pass over these two verses in chapter 8 and miss them, but the writer wants you to know that this is the whole point of what he's saying in the letter. Don't avoid, miss, neglect, bypass Jesus. He is the key to the solutions of you and your children, your loved ones, and all the world, and people need to grasp hold of him. That's why the old Negro spiritual, I must tell Jesus, is expressing a piece of theological genius that when you know how great he is and how good he is, you'll go and you'll speak to him about the things that are on your mind and your heart because he's able to do things as he sees fit and he is keen to help with a very sympathetic spirit and if you've got a number of things that are on your mind and heart and almost everybody here will have what better to do than to go and find time to speak to him and to perhaps go down your little list with him and say can I please bring these matters to you I'm not necessarily expecting that they'll be solved in a second but I'm wanting you to give me the resources for trusting you and obeying you, and I'd certainly like you to intervene according to your wisdom and power. I must tell Jesus that's how we respond to the best person. Now, the second thing is the best place, verses 3 to 6. Where do we find him? And, of course, there are many people who look for him in the wrong places. It is possible to go to the wrong place sincerely, I was reading uh, recently that two American sisters had been visiting the wrong grave to pay respects to their deceased mother for 20 years. For 20 years they've been going and visiting a grave which is not the grave of their mother and they're actually seeking huge compensation for the emotional distress. But there they are sincerely at the wrong place and it's possible to go to the wrong place to find your Saviour and your Lord. Look at verse 5. It says, those priests serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow 
of what is in heaven. Can you believe this? The great temple, which was probably still operating when this letter was written in the first century, for all the greatness and the grandeur of that great temple, it's a copy and a shadow of the heavenly temple, the heavenly tabernacle. So I don't know if you know this, but when Moses was given the Ten Commandments, and of course God knew that the people would break the Ten Commandments, God put in place a tent or a tabernacle, which would be a place where sacrifices would be offered, so that those who broke the commandments, and they knew that they'd broken the commandments, could go to the tabernacle or the tent and offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of their sins. And this um, tent or tabernacle was something which followed the people of Israel all the way through their journey uh, through the wilderness until they got to the promised land. When they got to the promised land, they soon abandoned the tent or the tabernacle because that was portable and small, and they built a massive temple. But the question that we have to ask is, where did Moses get his design for the tent, the tabernacle, and finally the temple? Where did he get his plan? Where did he get his blueprint? Well, the answer is that Moses was shown the heavenly design by God. And uh, when Moses went up the mountain, we read in Exodus chapter 24, he went up with Joshua and 70 elders, and they had remarkable fellowship with God. And then Moses and Joshua left the 70, and they went up a little further. And then eventually Moses left Joshua, and he went up a little further. And it seems very clear from the Old and the New Testament that Moses, in some remarkable way, was shown the heavenly layout of the heavenly temple or the heavenly glory or the heavenly splendor. And God said to him, when you go back down and you build the tent or the tabernacle and eventually the temple, build it on the layout of what you've seen. So uh, the old saintly preacher of the 19th century, F.B. Meyer, says, Moses trod the aisles of the true tabernacle. And because he got to tread the aisles of the true tabernacle, when he came down, he knew the design or the layout for the earthly tent, tabernacle, and temple. Now, you see the point of what the writer is saying. If the Jews go back to visit the temple and they devote themselves to the temple and they think that's the goal of their religion, then what they're doing is they're going back to a model. They're going back to a copy or an imitation, a duplicate, a shadow, a replica, a likeness of the heavenly reality. And they are therefore turning their mind and their heart away from where there is a real future and they're going backwards to where there is no hope or future. Now, when the writer of Hebrews talks like this, he's not falling into what you may know as platonic philosophy. Platonic philosophy is this idea that there are sort of objects, but somewhere there is a, a form or a reality behind the objects. No, no, he's not falling into platonic Greek philosophy. The writer of Hebrews is basically saying, do you realize that that tent, tabernacle, temple was temporary? 
It's gone. It's obsolete. It was pointing to someone who would come, and that someone is Jesus, and he would offer himself. He would be the priest who offers himself, and that would be the end of sacrifices and the end of altars and the end of priests, and he would enter into the true heavenly tabernacle, and that's where we must focus our faith and our hope. And if you drift back, says the writer, to the model, to the replica, to the Lego model, you're basically missing the whole purpose and direction of where you should be going. Now, the flip side of this, of course, is that if we do look to Jesus Christ based on the Word of God and the promises of God, and we lift up our heart to Him and we say, you're the Son of God, you're the Saviour, you're seated on the throne of heaven, you're the one that I want to trust, you're the one I want to serve, then you receive everything that He has come to provide, and you're also heart-safe where He resides. So, to go backwards to some religious setup is a tragedy. To lift up your mind and your heart to Christ on the throne is an absolute triumph. I would like to show you, um, if you're here next week, how uh, the layout of our building says a lot about our beliefs. What does the Stonehenge construction say about the people's beliefs who set it up? What does a temple in Thailand say about the beliefs of the people who build it? A friend of mine was in Thailand recently and said that he went to a temple which was marked by every possible idol that you could think of and stuck on the wall for good measure with the Ten Commandments, one of which says you shall have no idols. So there's a complete dysfunctional And uh, what does um, a church that's being built in the western suburbs today say by its layout? What does this building say by its layout? What have the builders of this building tried to say by the way they've constructed the building? Well, these are very interesting questions, and I hope that we'll look at that in weeks to come. But you see the bombshell that the writer is dropping, and that's why one commentator says this is perhaps the climax of the book. He isn't just saying, make sure that you don't turn away from Jesus. He's saying, do you realize that if you've put your worship into something that is earthly, even if it's a good building like the temple, which God authorized. You're just devoted to something which is passing, plastic, and tragic. Unless your heart is in heaven, you see, fixed on Christ, trusting Christ, the one who's enthroned and the one who offered himself, your devotion, your religion, no matter how sincere, can be utterly mistaken. If it is in Christ, it's utterly secure, utterly accurate, and you have found the very best place for the goal of your life. We often say, don't we, about how people follow their hearts, and they do. And that's a tragedy if your heart is in the wrong place, and it's an absolute joy if it's in the right place. And here the writer is saying to his readers, your heart should be fixed on Christ who has gone into the true tabernacle of glory and he is seated on the right-hand side of God and he is the one who is ruling the world and he is the one who is able to save. 
The third thing this morning is the best plan, verses 7 to 13. Now, the last section is basically teaching that when Jesus did his work and offered himself and entered the true tabernacle, he brought the old plan of God, the old covenant, to an end. And he brought the new plan of God, the new covenant, into being. So the old covenant closed down and the new covenant opened up. Do you know what a covenant is, everybody? A covenant is an agreement or a contract which gets sealed or confirmed or inked in by two parties. The two parties may not be equals. One may be superior, one may be inferior. But basically, that's what a covenant is. It's a contract between two parties. And this reference to the first covenant is talking about the covenant that God made at Mount Sinai. And uh, we're told in chapter 8, verses 7 to 8, that the covenant failed, and it failed because the people failed. They couldn't keep the arrangements. They couldn't keep the commandments. And uh, the old covenant had no petrol to help them to do it. And so God announced that there would be a new covenant and the new covenant would succeed. And he predicted the new covenant in many of the prophets in the Old Testament, but none better than Jeremiah, which is the long quote here in chapter 8. Jeremiah said this in 600 BC, that there would be a new covenant. And when the new covenant would come, it would be a better covenant. Now, friends, I can't tell you how important this is this morning, because if you belong to the old covenant, you've basically got to work your way up into glory. And you'll just never do that. And it's very easy to uh, moralize people, including our children, and say to them, if you perform well, then one day you'll get there. And that's the way the pagan world thinks. That's what most of the religions of the world are thinking. We must somehow climb a great ladder up to God. But the new covenant is something completely different. It comes to us as a covenant of grace. It's a gift And there are three things in chapter 8 as we come to a close which the new covenant is able to do. Verse 10, first of all, it reaches into the heart. The Lord says, I will write my laws on their hearts. In other words, I'll give them a heart which is new. The old covenant was on stone blocks. The new covenant is going to be written on the human heart. If you've been watching the Troubles on television this last week, you'll know that there's a whole lot of people in all sorts of places who are wringing their hands about what would cause this sort of trouble. And of course, you probably know that what we've seen on our televisions in this last week is not just happening in one city, but is happening, in fact, in many cities. So um, our daughter and son-in-law say that there is virtually always tear gas in the air in Santiago in Chile because of the continual rioting that is going on. But we happen to have focused this last week on a lot that's taking place in London. And you'll notice that whenever the leadership steps up to say something about what's happened, that the inevitable solution is that we need to go back to ourselves. We need to go back to our educators. We need to go back to our politicians. We need to go back to the police. We need to go back to parents And all of these things have no doubt got some merit. But you'll notice that nobody comes up with a solution to change the hearts of the people. Because changing the hearts of the people is outside the scope of humanity. But it's not outside the scope of God. 
God is able to change the hearts of people. And when he decides to save people and people put their trust in his son, their hearts are transformed. And I tell you, when your children get to be teenagers and you watch them travel out for the evening, you'll thank God if their heart has been transformed because of their faith in Christ, because that will guide a huge amount of their decision-making that night. Whereas if you've got to give them 5,000 rules and laws before they head out that night, they'll not only forget them, they won't like them, and they won't have the strength to do them. So the transforming power of the new covenant is absolutely revolutionary. And there may be some people this morning, you're trying to live the Christian life, but your heart has not been changed. And your heart will be changed when you put your heart into the very hands of Christ. I spend quite a bit of time this week talking to a man who comes to this church quite often And yet it seems clear to both of us that Jesus is not his Lord and Jesus is not his Saviour. He's not reborn, he's not transformed, but he's trying his very best to live the Christian life without a new heart. Now the new covenant, says the writer, will change the hearts of those who believe. The second thing this new covenant will do is it will cause people to know God, verse 11. Not just know about him, but to know him. It's like when you've met somebody who's famous and you're able to say forevermore, I know that person. And now under the new covenant, it's possible to say, I know God. You don't have to badger me to know him. You don't have to pester me to start a relationship with him. I know him. That's the mark of the new covenant. What a privilege. And one day, because you know him, you're going to come face to face with him and he's going to say to you, I know you. But if you don't know him, then there'll come a day where you come face to face with him and he'll say to you in the words of Matthew 7, I don't know you. So how important it is that this new covenant would come into the world which would transform hearts and would help people to know him. And what a privilege to know him. And then the third thing we're told about this new covenant, verse 12, is that it will bring forgiveness and God will remember our sins no more. Well, if you went down to the temple and you offered your animal sacrifice, it didn't really buy forgiveness. It only bought amount a bit of time because no animal can stand in for a person because the animal is not a willing sinner and therefore can't pay for a willing sinner. But uh, when Jesus Christ came, he was a willing sacrifice and therefore he's able to pay for the sins of those who willingly fail and sin. And when this wonderful forgiveness is given to us, and we find that the sins which we have committed are removed from our record forever, we walk before God with a clean conscience, thanks to Christ, and we'll one day meet him with a clean slate, thanks to Christ. And in the present, of course, God remembers our sins no more. And there's nothing more wonderful than being able to pray to a God and say to him, would you please forgive me for my sins? I feel so terrible about what I've said or done. And he says, yes, I gladly will forgive you. And then you go back to him and say, I just feel so terrible about what I said or did. And if I may say this respectfully, he says, I don't know what you're talking about. 
I just don't remember what you're talking about. It's gone. I've forgotten that. It's forgiven. It's washed. I remember it no more. That is the blessing of the new covenant. A new heart, knowing God, forgiven. And when you grasp this, you never fall for cheap, shoddy models of religion because you know that they cannot do what Christ can do and that he can do what they cannot do. And that's why you lift up your mind and heart to Christ on the throne of heaven and you say thank you so much for being the best person in the universe to trust and obey. Thank you for being in the best place where I will be one day and thank you for being uh, the one who's brought in the best plan by which my heart can be changed, I can know you personally, and I can walk before you with an absolute clean slate. There's no greater privilege for us and for our children. Well, let's thank him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you this morning for the reality of the coming of Christ. We thank you for the reality of his death and resurrection. We thank you for the reality of his ascension and his seating on the very throne of heaven. And we pray that you would enable us by your grace and your power to trust him, to look to him, to walk with him. We pray that you would give to all who are gathered this morning the ability from you to put genuine trust in him. And we pray, our Heavenly Father, that you would transform many hearts and bring people into a true knowledge of you. And we pray that you would also give to us today and every day the joy of forgiveness and fellowship and a future. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.